Hey, all you nature nerds, this is You're Gonna Die Out There. nature nerds to another episode of you're gonna die out there i'm jen i am sitting across from my good friend megan hello we look up rando stories so you don't have to that's a tagline we have a follower on instagram who has we've shared a lot of her stuff before student nurse skip yes she said when are you guys gonna do the merch idea of a shirt that just like can you imagine can you imagine and then it was like tisk <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You know, yeah. I and I, I have been thinking about it because mm-hmm. I like to work on merch stuff. Yes. But I have, to, I have to find the right image. I'm still searching. So if anybody has any good images that would go with that. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? <laughs> that we need it. Yeah. And then I'll make the t-shirt Well, happen. and I also love that she was like in the Raglan style. And I was like, that's my alley right there. I mean, those are basically the only shirt, kind of shirts I like to wear. I got one of ours. Yes. It was almost to my knees. And it was a regular <laughs> size everywhere else well i mean i know i have no torso i'm short but i had to have my mom take it up for me it's like mom can, can you have this, this? <laughs> it's my life yeah anyway. yeah but you know that's your like that's... long dresses nope <laughs> you know that's the cross that you bear in this life it is. and i'm okay with it you know it's totally fine i can squeeze through crowds unnoticed Megan, we are mm-hmm, going mm-hmm. to have a patron to shout out at, at the, the end. end. We are. If you are a patron or you want to become a patron, there's a bunch of episodes on there. We are also doing extra science news. Yeah, we put up two new science newsies nuggets. One every week. Super. Yeah, so go check it out. Oh, yeah, we got a lot of pictures of people's pets. Yes. Adorable. So and funny stories cute. and all kinds of stuff. So we're going to start maybe posting them as long as we have everybody's permission. We'll post them stories yeah and figure out how we want to like put it together we did post one today of one of our listeners who i think i i tagged her in there michaela yeah you did you did you tagged her because she's working at a flying fox ref rescue in a refuge refuge (laughs) a refuge (laughs) i was like refuge rescue that was what's going through my brain when i worked at the wildlife refuge people would always be like um what are the hours of the refugee (laughs) i was like um, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny. To it's just so it random. When I worked at the Wildlife Refuge, we took care of a couple of fruit bats that couldn't be released to the wild for various reasons, and they were so sweet. Mm. Michaela sent us some pictures and video of these bats, and they're so freaking adorable. They're trying to release as many as they can, which I thought was really nice. Mm-hmm. And then some of them just can't be re-released because they've been too injured or, right, or whatever. Right, right, right. And I thought this was the funniest thing. And you kind of were like, yeah, that happens. Where she was saying, any healthy babies accidentally conceived in care will eventually be released as well. And then she just wrote sneaky bats. They are super sneaky. Somebody within the State Wildlife Agency, they had confiscated a couple of fruit bats from Mm. somebody's house. Oh, because they were like keeping them over. I don't know if they were in the same container, but maybe when they brought them over, they they did, but briefly. And then we had since separated them because we were like male, female, already, already pregnant. (laughs) We're like, it was like one day we're like, what is she holding? (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. They're super sneaky. They're just like, let's get it on. Yeah. Like quietly, they're like whispered, let's get it on. 
But then when they do it, they're like, hey, you want to do this? And then they're like, wee, 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 wee. <laughs> and it's like all alive. <laughs> so crazy. <laughs> Keep the pictures, the stories coming because we love it. Mm-hmm. If it's, Let us know if we can share it, whether it's on Instagram or however. Yes. We had someone send in a beagle, I think a picture of her beagles. Oh, in, my God. In an email. So, so puppy beagle. cute. So I will probably put that as a, as, as a story. Definitely. And then um, we also had a return Peace Corps volunteer talk to us and she has a kitty cat. She has two now, but she oh, had right. a cat that she got in her country, her host mm-hmm. country, and brought it back. Oh, Do you news. have some science news for us? I do have some science news. I wanted to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart. Maybe many, many others. It's science, but it's more of a social science or a linguistic science, if you will. I wanted to share with you Mm -hmm. and everybody, as we have ventured into this podcasting realm, I mean, we're just, you know, like humans and we are not actors. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or we were not trained in journalism or I am broadcasting. Not a thespian. We are returned Peace Corps volunteers, unrenowned biologists, sometimes presenters, moms. And when we're presenting, it's usually very serious. You know, it's like super serious. Yeah. Yeah. This is the first time that I've had to listen to myself. <laughs> <laughs> and thank God for Megan's amazing editing skills that she manages to cut out a lot of my you knows and likes and ums and ahs and all that. So I started Googling, like, how do you stop saying like, like. or mm-hmm. you know? This, this doesn't only apply to podcasters. It applies to everybody mm-hmm. because everybody typically mm-hmm. at some point in your work life, you'll give a speech or a talk or presentation. Even a job interview. Tell us about yourself. Um, well, um... Uh, yeah. I grew up in, uh, yeah. I'm from Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I, grew, I lived there till I was three, <laughs> but I like to say I'm from there. I was looking up, like, how do you kind of catch yourself from saying it? Because I don't hear it. Mm-hmm. I don't hear myself say it. And I noticed that I don't always do it. Mm-hmm. It's just sometimes when I'm paraphrasing or trying to summarize a story or something I read that maybe I'm still working it out in my head, a portion of it that maybe I'm not so clear on, or I don't understand, you know, <laughs> I found found this article from 2014 from The Independent, and it's entitled, People Who Say Like All the Time May Be Deep Thinkers. So of course I gravitated to that one. There it is. I'm like, well, let's read this one so I can feel better <laughs> about myself. It kind of talks about how the word like is a filler word. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people like to see there I said like, <laughs> but in a different way. So there's another right. article that talks about all the different ways that you the say word like, like is mm-hmm. used. But in this case, it's used as a filler word and people always associate it with kind of like being dingy or valley girl or... Yes. It sounds immature. They actually looked at it a little bit closer in an article in the Journal of Language and so- Social Psychology. The researchers explained, and this is in quotes, hmm. the possible explanation for this association is that conscientious people are generally more thoughtful and aware of themselves and their surroundings. When having conversations with listeners, conscientious people use discourse markers, such as I mean and you know to imply their desire to share or rephrase opinions to recipients. Thus, it is expected that the use of discourse markers may be used to measure the degree to which people have thoughts to express. That's kind of cool. Basically, a lot of people who use filler speech 
are constantly redrafting as they speak, and they want to transfer thought into speech in the most accurate way possible. So it says also that discourse fillers are a sign of uh, more considered speech. So it makes sense that conscientious people use them more often. Mm -hmm. And the study went on to say that fillers could be a good way of sizing up a personality of someone when you first meet them. So you can determine whether they're like worthy of your time. (laughs) (laughs) There was another article in Time magazine about it. And this was from 2019. There was another researcher. Her name was Alexandra D'Arcy. She's a Canadian linguist from the University of Victoria. And a lot of her research was understanding the many functions of the word like. I'm not going to go through all of it, but there are a lot of different ways. And she kind of goes going back 200 years. There's people in Great Britain that are older, like in their 70s and 80s, using the word like in many different ways that are compared to how people perceive younger people using it. And they also say that it's more women than men that use it. But there are men that use different ways of using the word like. She said, pragmatically speaking, saying like as in, I was like, I want to see Superwoman or I want to like do this. It allows you to tell a story to relay something that happened without having to quote the interaction verbatim. For example, like she's an example, like my boss was like, I need those papers by Monday. And I was like, are you effing kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) That's what she wrote. (laughs) I'm reading it. (laughs) And you're not repeating what was truly said, but instead using like to convey what you wanted to say or how you feel how you felt in that interaction. My favorite thing to say in situations like that is, well, and then I was like, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't really say it that way. I said it a different way. You're like, I was like, F you, man. But, but actually, I, I, I said, didn't okay. say it like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she said that the other like that women tend to use more frequently is categorized as discourse marker. So it's hmm. the same thing. And she said it's in content such as like the suit isn't even new. <laughs> I don't know. And she said a discourse marker sometimes called a filler word is a type of phrase that can help a person connect, organize, or express certain attitude with their speech. I like Just it. like, just, you know, and actually. They're just filler words. It sounds to me like what they're saying is that, yeah, you can't judge people because a lot of people who use those discourse filler words are just trying to rephrase things so that you understand it better. And they're actually giving it some deeper thought. It's a little more empathetic. Right. They're trying to convey a story or some situation to you and they're still maybe working it out in their head. Yeah. Which is really interesting. And the last thing that they say is all these different ways to use like in the same sentence isn't bad. If you really listen to how many times you use the word like it's a lot but it's like here it's a noun here it's an adjective here it's a verb it's a discord it's a filler word so you have all these different ways to use it and she said some studies have demonstrated that the speech lacking in likes and you knows can sound too careful almost robotic or unfriendly like serial killers i was thinking about it that there's a lot of podcasts that i like listening to like case Mm -hmm. files I don't think I've listened to that one. It's just a true crime one. Mm -hmm. It's been on forever. And it's just an Australian guy. And he's just reading. And it's very serious. And he's just reading a story. And that's totally okay. I like listening to those too. Because it's like... Telling a story. It's like you're listening to an audiobook or something. Absolutely. Or if you listen to another podcast, which is similar to our format, like Mm -hmm. Morbid. They're just telling a story. I definitely have done professional educational presentations and I will spend many versions of that presentation practicing in front of a mirror to work out everything so that I don't do that. The ums, the the you know. Because because I'm 
I'm doing something that's very serious. It's very serious. <laughs> it needs to be perfect. What's kind of creepy to me is that sometimes I will also throw in things like stories in mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. You've seen me give a presentation before. And sometimes I'll make a joke in the presentation. And <laughs> I've practiced that joke so many times and it's and part of me is like this doesn't sound like a joke but i'm really trying to make it sound like a joke and the otter said i otter be over there (laughs) 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 and it's just crickets in the audience blank stares Perfect. Nailed it. People who are teaching a speech class or how to give presentations will throw things at the students every time they say like or um or put a filler word. I would just cry. Can you imagine? (sighs) I can't. Can't even. I guess that might work for some people, but I'll do my best not to do it. But now you know that I'm just a deep thinker, okay? You're just trying to tell us a story and express it in a way that we'll all understand. That's right. We're here for it. Thank you. You're welcome. And I apologize. (laughs) I did look at some other podcast reviews. Sometimes I just feel their pain when they're bad. And I did see some that talked about using the word like a lot. Mm -hmm. There's some about vocal fry or up talk, which women do those things a lot. And people People just go nuts over it, but Mm -hmm. it's kind of something that's been ingrained in women for a long time. For a long time. I sometimes lift the ends of my sentences. In fact, my new Italian dad told me that I sound like I'm from California. Really? And I was like, really? And I think it's because he's so like, yeah, he's just from the Bronx. He's so, yeah, he grew up in the Bronx. He lived in Long Island. It's like that, you know. I think that both of us, we don't have any accent. I do still. Kind of wish that, what if I had grown up in New Jersey? Oh, that would be amazing. Let's just imagine that for a minute. We'll have coffee, we'll talk. <laughs> Good times. Okay, <laughs> Megan, are you ready? Are you ready? I've been ready all week. Mm-hmm. I can't I, wait. You know, originally I told you I was going to do a different story. Yeah. And then yesterday I was researching that story and I was like, I wasn't feeling it so much. So I, I'm gonna that save happens it. to me too. Yeah, I'm going to save yeah. it for another time. Yep. And this suggestion has actually come through a couple different people Oh yeah. on the Instagrams. Like, oh, have you heard of this? And honestly, it was one of the first things I wrote down when we were talking about ideas for this podcast. I was like, oh, we're going to have to cover this story. For sure. I mean, everybody knows it, but also it's an interesting story. It's an interesting, it's a harrowing story. (laughs) It's harrowing. So we've had a couple people suggest, I know our friend Scott Haller, who's also a Patreon, suggested it to us way back when we first started. And, uh, you know, in the beginning of the year. (laughs) (laughs) Back like five months ago. Oh my God, so long. We also got the suggestion from Jasmine Devora, who is a follower of us on the Instagrams. Thank you both for suggesting this story. But first, yes, let's talk about slot canyons. Slot, slot, slot canyons. <laughs> not slot canyons. Let's not, let's not slut shame rocks, Jen. What's <laughs> happening here? My God, they've been around for so long. They deserve better. Slot canyons. Okay. Like your coin slot. Okay. Also kind of shaming them. The coin slots of the earth. Oh, okay. Slot canyons are created by tectonic movement. We would call it like an earthquake. Yes. The earth breaks open and then water runs through the break that's in the earth. And after millions of years, erosion does what it does best and a slot canyon is born. And it erodes. It doesn't get wider like the Grand Canyon. It's... 
just very thin. So slot canyons are very narrow gorges with steep high walls, often made from soft rock like basalt or sandstone. There can be ones that are made of granite, but they're not as like, not popular. What's the word I'm looking for? Frequent. Common. Common. Thank you. A lot of slot canyons have waterfalls at their tail ends, which kind of makes sense because water runs through them. So there's usually like a really nice waterfall and like a pond or something that cooler people jump off of and swim in. Right. But I would be like, you might die. Don't do it. So they're deeper than they are wide. They can be very treacherous, Jen. They offer limited access in and out. It's like one way in, one way out, kind of. And they're prone to flash floods because it's like a deep crevasse that Mm -hmm. can just fill up with water whenever there's a lot of rain. Yeah. Yeah. They commonly contain unique ecological communities that are distinct from the adjacent drier uplands. I tried to look up animals that live in slot canyons and it was... Nada. Yeah. I mean, in, in like areas where there are a lot of slot canyons, there are some, you know, like ungulates and things like that that can climb around on the rocks and so murder get, hornets <laughs> murder <laughs> just murder hornets live there they're That's awful. all that lives there just kidding some slot canyons can measure less than one meter or three feet across at the top but drop more than 30 meters or 100 feet to the floor of the canyon so it's like if you accidentally fell in <sighs> it could be bad news that just thinking about it makes me really uncomfortable it, it's a little claustrophobic right yeah because it there's some areas like that on guam too mm-hmm. in the karst yeah it drops down to you don't know it's just darkness you don't know where it goes to yeah and it just when i've been in some of those areas and when you look down it just it's so scary it really gives me like that just that fear you know what it is it's baby jessica fear the oh the baby in the well yeah it's, it's that that feeling of like oh god you know you're just kind of trapped or the story i talked about with mawson and his companion that fell in the crevasse yeah. in antarctica and just you just don't know where it's going it just yeah. went forever I and mean, they never heard the, them or saw them he just disappeared awful slot canyons can be found in many parts of the world predominantly in areas with low rainfall so usually in like arid deserty type areas mm-hmm. sierra de guara in northern spain the pyrenees on the border of france and spain the blue mountains in new south wales and australia and actually the largest slot canyon is in australia and of course i didn't write down the name even though i read about it and i thought i left it here so you guys can go look that up <laughs> perfect Uh, Southern Utah has the densest population of slot canyons in the world with over 1,000 slot canyons in the desert lands south of uh, the interstate. So it's like right over the border from Colorado. There's like a major interstate that runs across. I forget the number. It's like right south of there. Okay. One of the world's best known slot canyons is the serpentine entrance to the ancient city of Petra in southwestern Jordan. And you would know it, Jen. I think a lot of our listeners would know it and have seen it in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, yeah. So the slot canyon that is featured in our story today is the one named Blue John Canyon and it is in the southeastern part of Utah just over from Colorado Mm -hmm. and this canyon was named for a man named John Griffith who was an old west outlaw fun he had heterochromia so he had one blue eye and one brown eye and that is how they started calling him Blue John and he would keep stolen horses in and around the canyon Okay. Yeah. And in the late 1800s, I really tried to find more information about this guy because he sounds kind of fun and he has a whole freaking canyon named after him. So I was like, got to be more about him. But it was kind of difficult to find information. It was just like these little blips. Uh, So in the late 1800s, he attempted to float down a nearby canyon called Glen Canyon and was never seen again. Oops. (laughs) That was the wrong canyon, Blue John. So Blue John Canyon is very remote. The closest towns are Green River, which is 40 miles north, or Hanksville, which is 26 miles west. It is sometimes people think it's in the Canyonlands National Park. So that's the area with like a lot of these slot canyons. Mm -hmm. Blue John Canyon is actually on Bureau of Land Management land. So it's not part of 
the Canyonlands National Park. Got it. The main fork of the canyon is approximately 11 miles in length, and it runs north to northeast from the Robbers Roost Flats, and it is a tributary of the Horseshoe Canyon. The main fork also has several tributary canyons of its own. So it's basically like one big canyon with a bunch of little canyons attached to it. Mm -hmm. And if you are going to traverse the entire length of Blue John Canyon, it requires that you have technical canyoneering skills and equipment. So you can't just like just stroll around in there so i'm not going there yeah like we're not going there no yeah i did find this website that had like a bunch of different things you could pay like two hundred dollars a person and they would send you with like an expert person to do it but it's like i'm so i'm not into heights so i'd be like you'd have to literally lower me down like i would who's your largest person <laughs> i have to like tandem give like, me your strongest <laughs> <laughs> can you carry me down in this backpack like that's <laughs> that's what we're talking about here is that close like where is that to bryce canyon which is like the real famous one in utah uh, is that it? okay so this area is really close to arches i think mm. i'm pretty sure all well the, all the people from that, that area are like yeah <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry i looked at a map and i don't have it in front of me right now yeah it's like right over from colorado so it's on like okay the so squarey think, part there's like yeah. the top part in salt lake blah blah, blah and then down and over so my my good friend candace and i before i left for peace corps we went on a yoga retreat oh. in bryce canyon oh. and it was kind of like the elevation was high because i think it was yeah. i was living in uh, california at the time near the sea level but we did some amazing hikes it was very pretty i mean it's very beautiful yeah but we, we talked about this with claire nelson's story in the joshua tree yes. national park yeah yes. that it's like very similar that kind of deserty yeah there's a lot of rock formations it's really beautiful yeah it's just it's desert it's different yeah it's beautiful there's a lot of stuff to do down there too mountain biking mm-hmm. climbing all right so we're going to talk about a guy named aaron ralston if you've seen the movie yeah 127 hours you know what's up you know what's up i feel like his story is very uh well known he is you know now a motivational speaker i think he still does motivational speaking but we'll get to all that stuff anyway so aaron ralston was born on october 27th 1975 in marion ohio and his family moved to denver when he was 12 he lived his life there everything was gravy and then he graduated from carnegie mellon university in pittsburgh and he had degrees in mechanical engineering and french with a minor in performance piano Wow. I'm like, wow, that's that's kind of cool. He wow. did a lot of rafting guides during the summer. And okay, so I was super into rafting at some point in my life. Uh-huh. I was like, this is great. We used to go all the time with this like church group. It's like a youth group. But like our youth group leaders were really into outdoor shit. And so we would go rafting and it was great until one year I got caught underneath a raft in the middle of a <gasps> class four rapid. You're like, nope. And I couldn't. I mean, they could see like my hands and I was trying to do oh the thing. God. No, it was awful. And it, I was trying to do the thing where, you know, you just you're just supposed to float up and like put your feet in front of you uh-huh. and just, you know, just let the current take you like that's what you're supposed uh-huh. to do. But I was caught on the boat. I could, And I couldn't. It was like this whole thing. Anyway, so I was like not super into rafting for a little while. I tried to do it the next year and I like had a little bit of a panic moment. No, it's true. When you when something like that happens, it's yeah. like you get a mental block. Mm-hmm. So like a following year, we went and visited my aunt and we went on the Colorado River. It was like zero rapids. They said like class one, but it was really just like these little, little tiny rapids that we uh-huh. went through. And I even semi panicked about that. Anyway. I don't 
So he worked as a rafting guy during the summers in Colorado. And he then, after he got his degrees in mechanical engineering and French, he worked for several years designing clean rooms, quote unquote, for microchip production uh, for a small company called Intel. So he worked for Intel. Wow. I know, right out of college. They wouldn't give him three weeks off to climb Mount McKinley. So he quit. He quit working at Intel. He was like, fuck you guys. Because it was very important to him from a young age that he be able to do outdoor stuff, to be out Mm -hmm. and in the wilderness doing shit. He really loved it. It was like his passion. So he's like, I want to take my vacation. And they were like, you can't. And he was like, here's my resignation. Peace out. I say good for you. If you're going to work for somebody who denies your the time off that you deserve. Yeah. Fuck off. So he told someone once, quote, I could live out of my truck. That's kind of an attractive lifestyle to me, actually. Which reminds me of that one guy that we follow on Instagram. That lives out of his... That lives out of his Subaru. Yeah. Yeah. So great. Uh, So he moved to Aspen and he started working at a mountaineering store called Ute Mountaineer or Ute. He was uh, working there as like a salesperson or something selling mountaineering gear. Yep. So he's getting a discount. He's getting For sure. He's getting a discount. Mm -hmm. Every time he got a chance to go out into the wilderness, that's what he would do. Living his passion. His friend Fielder said, to challenge yourself to survive in what can often be hostile conditions is a very primal thing that people like Aaron do. So just again, he's very into the outdoor stuff. He took survival courses. Mm-hmm. He did all of that to enjoy as much as he could and kind of push himself to the limit. Right. I don't remember if it was before this incident or if it was after that he did. There are these peaks in Colorado. I think they're called 14ers. 14, I think they're 14,000 feet, something mm-hmm. like that. And it, there's like a whole series of them. And he did those. And then he was like pushing himself to do it in the winter too, solo. That reminds that me of, of your story about the... The mount- climber. The climber. Yeah. Yes. Did they have challenges? Yes. A certain number of peaks. Same deal. It seems like a theme for people who climb, that they're just wanting to get to that next level. Like, yeah. let's level up. I think in any sport or any outdoor triathlons, and mm-hmm. people are always going to challenge themselves. All right. So day one of this story, it is Saturday, April 26th at 9 a.m. Aaron, he had driven from Colorado, Aspen, where he was, to the Canyonlands National Park in Utah. Originally, he had been planning a mountaineering trip with some of his friends, but it was canceled at the last minute. And so he was like, you know what, I'm going to fill up this time and I'm going to take a solo five day road trip over to Utah. I'm going to do these slot canyons that are all over there. I feel like this is such a theme in so many stories we talk about is yeah. that somebody canceled last minute and something the person was like, you know what, I'm just going to do it anyway. I'm just going to go. He heads over to the Maze District and he was planning a 30 mile circuit of biking and canyoneering through Blue John and Horseshoe Canyons. So Horseshoe Canyon, I think, is maybe in Canyon Canyonlands National Park. And then Blue John, we already talked about, is over there on the Bureau of Land Management lands. He leaves his truck at the dirt trailhead for Horseshoe Canyon at 9 a.m. on April 26, 2003. Wow, this happened in 2003? I know, right? We're old. He takes off on his mountain bike, and he said usually he would leave a detailed schedule with his roommates, but since he left without knowing what his plan was, he only left one word for them, and it was Utah. Oh, boy. Another theme. Yeah. <laughs> is not giving enough information to your friends and family where you're going. He's carrying a 25-pound pack. He's got climbing gear, food, a gallon of water, which was divided between a three-liter camelback hydration bladder Mm -hmm. and a one-liter Nalgene bottle. Um, He's wearing a pair of beat-up running shoes and wool socks. He had on a t-shirt and shorts over bike shorts. So like I said, he's doing this mountain biking first. 
and he gets to Blue John Canyon and he locks his mountain bike there. He started out at, what did I say, 9 a.m.? This is 2.30. Okay. Around 2.30 p.m., he's already about seven miles into the canyon and it's like an 11-mile canyon thing. Mm -hmm. So I think he's trying to do the whole thing. I don't know. He gets to a place called Big Drop in his guidebook. So he's got a little guidebook he's kind of going through with maps and stuff like that. He's about halfway down this 65-foot high wall. So the wall of the canyon. Mm -hmm. So he's like in the dealio and he's kind of maneuvering down. He can see the sky above him, but he he's looking up, but and it's like a 10 foot gap. Mm -hmm. So he's actually between canyoneering or like whatever it's called, like rappelling. Mm -hmm. um, He's also scooching himself down with one arm and one leg on one side, one arm and one leg on the other side, like like a spider. Okay. You know what I mean? Um, he maneuvers around chalk stones. And chalk stones are these boulders that are suspended between the narrow walls. So like as erosion breaks down bigger pieces of rock, these boulders will fall into the slot canyons and get stuck because they're so heavy. Like can be anywhere from 1,200 to 10 pounds. I guess it depends on how thick the wall or how far apart the wall is. Mm-hmm. So there are these chalk stones and those are the boulders suspended there. And he's going further down into the slot canyon and it's getting more narrow. Now it's more like four feet. And there are ledges and lips that he can drop down on and then continue rappelling or climbing down all the way to the bottom, the floor, where he's going to kind of probably hike along Mm -hmm. and see different things or whatever he's going to do. I don't know. Around 245 or 250, he gets to another like ledge area where he can then rappel down a little further. Mm -hmm. And it's about 12 feet down to the ground. So he's about 12 feet up and he sees what he calls a refrigerator sized chalk stone ahead of him and a second chalk stone that's about the size of a large bus tire. And he decides he's going to step on the bus tire size one and he's going to dangle from it and drop to the canyon floor below. So he does like a little, like I said, that spider crawl Mm -hmm. across because it's like now it's like four feet. Um, For for all of our listeners, (laughs) Megan's doing this like hand gesture of like climbing, (laughs) shimmying down the side of something. This is how I would do it. And he gets above the stone and he kind of kicks at the stone and he steps on it, puts Mm -hmm. a little bit of weight on it. And he's like, okay, it's tight. It's it's not going to move. It's going to be able to, to hold me. Mm-hmm. And he stands on it. And it teeters just like a little bit. And he squats down and he grips one side and kind of slides down. So now he's dangling from the boulder. So it's almost like he gave it like a hug from the side. And he's like kind of slides out like from his tummy. And he like slides down. And now he's like dangling from the boulder. He adjusts his grip. His arms at this point are fully extended. And so he's kind of like adjusting his grip. And he feels the boulder actually teeter like scrape and it fully moves and he instantaneously knows he's in trouble Mm -hmm. so he lets go of the chalk stone because now it's full it's like rotating and he lands on the canyon floor looks up and he sees this bus size tire chalks like huge rock Uh coming down at him like it's freed from the canyon walls Oh my God. And he puts his hands above his head to protect his head. Wow. I know. But he has to stay where he is, Jen, because behind him, he didn't fully make it to the bottom of the floor. It's like there's like a little bit of a ledge behind him uh-huh. or something. Like, I'm not entirely sure how this... Uh, so I got some of this information from a story that he told. Right. And and it's like there's a ledge behind him. So he couldn't move. Or he'd fall off the or ledge. Or he'd fall off the ledge. So he was like, shit. So he's just kind of like 
waiting for it, I guess. Yeah. He says, quote, the next three seconds play out in slow motion. The falling rock smashes my left hand against the south wall. I yank my left arm back as the rock ricochets in the confined space and the boulder then crushes my right hand, thumb up, fingers extended. The rock slides down another foot, the wall with my arm in tow, tearing the skin off the lateral side of my forearm. Then silence. So the rock is like ping ponging. Right. Hits one hand, hits the other hand, scrapes that hand down. And now it's like he's pinned. Now it's three o'clock. He immediately tries to yank his arm out. So he's right now he's like pumping full of adrenaline. He's Mm -hmm. freaked out. He's like trying to yank his arm out from this area. But it's I mean, it's not moving. Right. The boulders, actually, they find out later it's 800 pounds. Oh, my God. It's It's wedged. No. And and it's not Mm -hmm. even that it's wedged in there. It's that his arm has made the wedge worse. You know what I mean? Right. Because it's filled that space even more. Even more. it's like really not moving. 800 pounds? 800 pounds. He's feeling panicked, tries pushing against the boulder with his free arm and his legs. Like he's going to move the boulder. But it, it doesn't budge. Because it's 800 pounds. Because it's 800 fucking pounds. Um, like I said, he's just like pumped with adrenaline. And after a lot of effort trying to remove himself, he's sweating profusely. He tries to drink some water from his camelback, but it's empty because he's been riding for, I mean, he started at 9 a.m. This is now like three. He's already drank a lot of water because he's been riding, hiking, climbing, all this stuff. He realizes like, oh, I got to get my Nalgene. It's on his back. Luckily, you know, his backpack is still on. He takes his arm out of the left side. He can't take his arm out of the right side. It's mm-hmm. in the wall. So he has to actually like loosen the thing and then put it all the way over his body and kind of shimmy it down so he can get his backpack and open it. And he pulls out his Nalgene. And before he even thinks about it, he's gulping water. Oh, no. He stops to breathe and then it like hits him that he just drank a third of his water supply. And he's stuck. And he wrote, okay, I say out loud, time to relax. The adrenaline's not going to get you out of here. Let's look this over, see what we got. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure it was more like yelling. Maybe he was yelling. Crying, cry yelling. <laughs> like, God damn it, don't drink your water. He can actually touch and see his right thumb. He can like see kind of around the boulder. So it's, it's basically like his palm and his fingers. To like his wrist. His thumb is gray and it's in like a not normal, not human position. His thumb has never done this in his life. Right. Position. Okay. And probably for the best, he can't really feel his right hand. I mean, there's pain because there's scraping on his forearm uh-huh. and just the pain of falling and all of that. But as far as like his hand goes, he just like, he can't really feel it. Right. Because it's cut off all the circulation, the 800 pound boulder yes. sitting on it. Yes. Yeah. He chastises himself for being stupid. He laments his situation. I feel like this is also a common theme. Yeah. That he's probably going to lose his right hand. Then he like mentally smacks himself around a little bit. And he's like, hey, dude, like bigger fish to fry. You're alone in the desert with very little water. And he starts thinking about like, okay, how much water? How much food? What do I have? And he kind of feels like, okay, I'm going to make it until Monday to get out of this predicament because it's right now it's Saturday. This really sounds like Claire's story. Yeah. It's so similar. It's so similar. He does a quick inventory to see what he has. Mm-hmm. This is so late 90s, early 200s. 200s? 200s, 2000s. <laughs> Close enough. This is it, so- was, <laughs> it was the nineties and the two hundreds. It's like it's like Vikings or something. I don't know. I'm thinking wait. What would- <laughs> so this is this is so late nineties, early two thousands. He has a CD player with CDs extra AA batteries, a mini digital video camcorder, a digital camera, a 
three LED headlamp, a knockoff of a Leatherman multi-tool. So it's just like, he says it in another article where it's like this free thing they give you if you buy a certain kind of flashlight. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> it's, like, it's like you didn't bring your Leatherman. You just like, were like, oh, I'm just going to go on this small trip. I'm going to bring this shitty one that I, you know, oh, just in case. No. He has a lot of climbing rope and harnesses and a harness. Uh-huh. And then he has a small wad of rappelling equipment that he'd brought to use at the big drop rappel that he just is coming down. So he has the CD player. So maybe the mini discs weren't out yet. There's no iPod shuffle yet. There's no there, yeah. iPod. Yeah. yeah. Nothing. No. It's true. There wasn't an iPod yet. I don't no. I think yeah. they came a little bit later. And the mini discs, that's what I used to listen to after right? I got tired of because I used to run with CDs and they would always skip. like skip. Kids now will not know. They'll never know. <laughs> and the Walkman like headphones. Yeah. That, like went in your ear. In the pictures of him sitting, you can see him. He's got like the headlamp on him. He has like little headphones. What was he listening to in 2003? Oh God, I can't. We're going to say, we'll talk about it later. Okay. Okay. okay I can't wait. <laughs> um, So he uses his rope bag as padding. So he's actually standing up. And his hand is pinned in the wall and he's standing there, but it's kind of like at a weird angle. And so he wants to relieve the stress of standing. So he takes this bag of rope that he has and he kind of throws it down and he leans his knees and shins on it so he can kind of like relax a little bit. Right. And he comes up with three plans to get loose. Number one, excavate the rock around his hand with the multi-tool. Okay. Chip it away. Chip it away. Number two, rig ropes and lift the boulder off his hand. Uh... He doesn't know it's 800 pounds. Okay. We know it, but he doesn't. Right, right, right. right. Or number three, amputation. Yeah, that would definitely be a plan C or plan Z. Yeah. Like Mm. for me... Yeah. yeah, yeah. He attempts plan A, yes. where he's going to excavate the rock with this shitty multi-tool that he has. And he said, actually, the sound of him kind of trying to break away rock was just the most minute sound in this giant canyon. It was almost depressing. It's like the boulder was laughing at him. Yeah. And he's chipping kind of at the boulder or at the wall. And it's like not making any dents. It's like little scrapies, you know? Yeah. It's sandstone. And, and he was thinking about all the times that he's been repelling or climbing or whatever and he uses a handhold and the handhold breaks and he's like why isn't this breaking right it's just not happening for him for whatever reason now it's 8 p.m uh it's starting to become nighttime and he realizes he's not going to be able to crack this boulder maybe if he had a pickaxe he could do it or a pick or some some kind of like other larger tool Mm -hmm. he could get this done but he's not going to be able to lift the boulder either because he needs way more rigging and some kind of system like a pulley system and so he actually says out loud to himself you're gonna have to cut your arm off and then he has a little argument out loud with himself yeah why not but i don't want to cut my arm off oh totally and then it's like aaron you're gonna have to cut your arm off and he and then he starts to kind of laugh at the ridiculousness of the situation that he's like here screaming at himself about how he's gonna have to cut his limb off oh my god yeah he keeps picking at the boulder and then he's also contending with sand blowing up from breezes through the canyon because imagine like the sand is like coming down or the wind is coming down uh-huh. picking up sediment dirt whatever and it's getting into his eyes and his mouth and his nose he's wearing contacts Oh. And the grit and dirt get underneath the contacts in his eyes. And this is day one. At night, he's picking at the chalk stone. And then he's like blowing away the small amounts of dust. Mm -hmm. And he cannot get the song from the first Austin Powers out of his head. (laughs) Do you know what song? Oh, God. I watched it. Please tell me. A BBC one, a BBC two, a BBC three, a BBC four, a BBC five, a BBC six, a BBC seven. 
heaven, a BBC heaven. Like he cannot get out of his head. That's amazing. Of all the, and I think he's like really candid in, in this retelling of the story. I don't know if it's an excerpt from his book or if it was just, it was an outside, outside online article. And it's so funny because he's like, fuck Aaron. That, <laughs> like what that the fuck? That sounds horrific. I was just looking. So while you were talking, this is the music thing. I'm like, what were we listening to? And it was Outcast. Hey, yeah, remember that song? Oh yeah, <laughs> the freaking. But also, M- Eminem was big. Beyonce, Black Eyed Peas. Oh, I know that. What you reference. can do with all that junk? All that junk inside that trunk. Wow, <laughs> an old white lady. He hears this song in his head, and he's kind of like cursing himself. He can't sleep when he's tired. The cold or the pulling of his wrist from his own body weight. Like so, he, if he starts to relax. It'll pull on his wrist. It causes him enough pain that he'll wake up. And he's like, you know what? I can't keep standing here. I got to try and construct a seat. So he actually is able to throw a rope up and over the, one of the ledges. It takes him a few tries. Okay. But he gets it up there and, he, and the rope gets wedged in between this like ledge and the wall strong enough to hold him. Mm-hmm. And he rigs up a seat using his harness and he leans back into the harness and instantly he feels better. Like relief. Yeah. And he's like, oh, thank God. You know, he's gonna be able to sleep, whatever. But like 15 minutes later, he realizes his harness is starting to restrict the blood in his legs. Oh, no. Because it's tight. It's yeah. a tight harness and he's putting all of his weight into it. He ends up doing, and this is for the whole time he's out there, he ends up doing 20 minute intervals of sitting and then standing. So like every 20 minutes he's standing up and then he so there's no sleep really happening. Oh my gosh. 8 a.m. the next morning, he hears a noise. He looks up and he sees, I think it was a raven fly overhead uh, about 70 feet above him. So he's like 65, 70 feet down in this canyon. Now we're on day two. That's Sunday, April 27th. It's 930 a.m. He's trying to think of all the possible ways he's going to die. So he comes up with kidney failure, hypothermia, flash flood. I'd mentioned earlier this like these areas are known mm-hmm. for these like awful flash floods. But he feels more resolute since he made it through the night. He's like, I made it through one night. I feel better. The day is here. You know, you feel like a little bit better sometimes in the morning if you've had like a real shitty night. I mean, this is a really shitty night, but yeah, the worst, <laughs> the worst. And now he's kind of got a rigging for his seat. He feels better. He starts to think about how he can use that rigging to put together some kind of pulley device to move the boulder. He's uh-huh. like, now that I got this thing up there over this ledge, like I'm going to try to get this boulder moved. I'm going to do it. You know, he's feeling motivated. Is he right handed or left handed? You know, I don't know. Because I'm right handed. And I feel like if my right hand, I wasn't able to use it. I'm just such a weakling and so uncoordinated with my left hand. I would just be like, Ugh. like, I don't want to have to depend on my left hand ever. I feel you. I'm thinking that he's probably Probably like pretty equal because he does a lot of climbing. Yeah, probably. And you have to be, you know, you can't like, I don't think you can be like super dominant on one side, can you? I don't know anything about climbing. So this is just me speculating. As we do. He tries a number of complicated systems. I mean, they might not be that complicated, but there's this whole like two or three paragraphs of him describing the different systems that he concocted to lift this boulder and how he moved the ropes and what kind of not well, he is an engineer whatever. but it's from search and rescue and then obviously his life is yeah like, i mean he's a climber stuff. he has the search and rescue and yeah. he's an engineer so he's thinking about how they evacuate people from vertical faces like how would they do that and so he's trying to use all these different ways that you would evacuate someone from a vertical space to uh-huh. essentially evacuate the boulder from his where he is so he can get his hand loose but nothing is moving the rock 
o'clock. And now it's after 1 p.m. So he started that in the morning around 9.30. Now it's 1. He spent the day working super hard. He's sweating really hard again. Oh, no. Then he hears voices echoing in the canyon and he screams a couple times for help. Like he hears them and he's like, wait, what? And he's like, help. And he said that the sound of his own voice screaming help was weird. Like he could hear that he was like really freaked out. Like it didn't sound like him. Yeah, but nothing. You know, no one calls back. Then later, like pretty soon after that, he hears it again. It's it's kind of like faint noises though. And he ends up figuring out that what he's hearing is actually just like this noise from a kangaroo rat scratching in its nest. 2 p.m. This is the first time that Aaron seriously considers amputation. Like it's not just this thing that he's kind of talking about. Yeah, he's like, like Plan C is a real deal right he's now. He's like, okay, so this is the deal. And he's concerned about two things. The first is if his cutting tool will even be able to get the job done. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like this bullshit cutting tool. And the other part is that he's really worried about bleeding out. Mm-hmm. And so he decides that what he's going to do, there's two blades on the cutting tool. He's going to keep the longer blade for continuing to chip at the stone part of me thinks that he's kind of almost like not wasting time but kind of like he's procrastinating yes if anything you're going to procrastinate it would be that he decides he's going to keep that longer blade for chipping and he's going to preserve there's like a smaller sharper blade for the possible surgery he does realize though that he'll never be able to get through the bone with this tool that he has like it's not going to happen and in hindsight and actually this is when I heard about this story I was like why didn't he just dislocate his elbow in my brain I mean I know that's like a real shitty thing to say but he actually says in hindsight the likeliest method available to cut his arm off would be cutting through the softer cartilage of his elbow elbow joint and that Mm -hmm. never occurred to him but aren't there like i mean even in your wrist Mm -hmm. there's cartilage between the bones that you could cut through but his wrist is oh is his wrist covered yeah oh i thought that i thought that the part of his wrist was still exposed no he's his wrist is covered he he wouldn't be able to get to it he's actually below the wrist in between his wrist and elbow is where he can cut and so he's like oh i'm gonna cut i'm gonna have to break or i'm gonna have to somehow get through these two Uh. bones and but he never thought about his elbow i would think at the time you just want to leave as much of your arm as possible as possible yeah you're like but i want what's my arm. the simplest place I yeah want my forearm and i've dislocated my elbow before in a derby game mm-hmm. and i've told you about it i don't think i ever talked about it on here but it's oh it's awful it's the weirdest feeling. When I broke it, I like landed straight down oh. on my mm. the heel of my hand. And it was a real stupid thing. I just wasn't paying attention. It was like it was like textbook beginner derby stuff. I felt so stupid. I'm like shaking my head at her like tisk tisk tisk. I'm like, wow, Megan. I was like, damn it. As I can't even skate <laughs> at all. When it was dislocated, you can, I mean, you can't do anything with it. I mean, it's not flopping around, but it, it was weird. That it was is weird. weird. But it would definitely be easier to cut through. Yeah. He's like, I got to make a, I got to make a tourniquet. So the first thing he thinks of is a tubing from his camelback. He cuts it off of the camelback thing. That's good thinking. Thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's smart. He ties it around his arm to see, can he use it as a tourniquet? But the plastic is too stiff and it won't lock the knot in place. Okay. Right. So he ends up putting together something with webbing. So he has like some webbing. I think it's like maybe from the backpacks or some kind of material webbing that he has. And he takes a carabiner, tightens that around and then twists the carabiner. Uh And that seems to work. He's like, okay, this is a possibility. I feel good about it. He actually does a test and he puts the knife to his skin to see how he's faring in terms of like cutting his own arm. Right. He's like testing it out. He's like, can I even do this? Well, I have enough courage to cut through my skin. And he has this overwhelming feeling of like, what the hell are you doing? 
feeling. Yeah. It's just no. not natural. He's like, do not, like his body is like telling him. It's like he's having this internal monologue yeah. of like, no, this is not happening. You're not doing this. Uh-huh. And then he has this image of himself bleeding out and he has some real dark internal thoughts. He describes them a little bit more, but basically it's like real gory Mm -hmm. and that he's almost like he can see his body dead and hanging there and it makes him repulsed and Mm -hmm. he throws up. Oh, yeah. He's like just the thought of the mutilation that he would have to do to himself and then dying in the attempt of that mutilation. It's too much. It's too much. It's too much. He again contemplates how he's going to die. He writes, but then another voice speaks coolly. That boulder did what it was there to do. Boulders fall. That's their nature. You did this, Aaron. You chose to come here today. You chose to to do this slot canyon by yourself. You chose not to tell anyone where you were going. That night, he has dreams that he's flying out of the canyon. Like he's just flying. So he slept a little. He slept a little. I think it's like off and on. Probably. He's just like his body shutting down. Waking dreams. Yeah. Yeah. So day three, Monday, April 28th. It, it is getting very cold at night. This is like desert situation. We've uh-huh. talked about it before. Hot mm-hmm. during the day, cold at night. Lucky for him in the slot canyon, he's kind of, there isn't like direct sun uh-huh. coming down on him. Yep. So that part I think is better. But yeah, it's cold and awful and painful. Day three, he it's 7 a.m. Monday, April 28th, 7 a.m. Does he ever talk about whether he ever felt pain from his hand while it was under there? I mean, it just, just lost circulation. It was crushed and that was it. Yeah, he doesn't ever talk about his hand feeling pain. He said he had some pain in his wrist and then definitely the skin on his arm. Like that scrape down the side, that part, but not so much his hand. I know a lot of people, they say when they break something, it's like they immediately kind of feel like they're going to throw up. When I broke my leg, it was like if you go to a chiropractor Mm -hmm. and they do like a really good adjustment on your back, it was like that, except it wasn't very satisfying. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder why. (laughs) It makes you feel a little bit like pukey. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you get like a really good massage, you know what I'm talking about? Like sometimes you can feel a little bit pukey. All right. So day three. It's Monday, April 28th, 7 a.m., and he's like, I got to rethink this tourniquet. The more he's thinking about it, the more he's like, I'm going to have to hold this carabiner in place. Like he he can't like secure it. So it's like it's got to be held. And oh, how's he yeah. going to do that? And uh-huh. that's going to be difficult. So he knows he needs something that's more like elastic. Uh-huh. And so he thinks of the neoprene insulation for the camelback tubing. So I guess the tubing that he has has like an extra insulator on it. Okay. That's made of neoprene. So he was like, okay, okay, this is better. So he can tie it. He's going to tie it. Mm -hmm. So he writes, using my left hand to wrap the thin black neoprene twice around my right forearm, two inches below my elbow, I tie a simple overhand knot and tighten with one end in my teeth, Uh then double and triple the knot. I take a carabiner and clip the neoprene, twisting it six times, clamping down on my forearm, the material pinches my skin. For some Mm. reason, the pain pleases me. Oh. Yeah. I can't imagine... Can you imagine? I cannot. I cannot imagine going through this. I think that the pain of fixing the tourniquet maybe is like the start of the resolution that it's going to happen. Like he knows that he can feel this pain right here, but probably if he can feel it right here, that's going to help him not feel anything further down. Right. You know, like, okay, this feels more secure. I feel like I'm moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. He actually takes the multi-tool and starts trying to cut like at this moment okay he's like all right i'm gonna do it but it won't even break the skin and he gets really frustrated and at one point he actually tries fully sawing with the multi-tool and it never breaks his skin no and he's like fuck 
Uh, 3.35 p.m. This is the first time he's gone pee since he dropped down. (gasps) And this is like day four? This is day three. Oh, day three. Okay. He saves it in his camelback. Okay. I mean, this is par for the course. We know know how this goes. We are old Well, and that's a survival tip. Survival tip. He knows he's going to need it. And you know what? Side note, this might be the first story I ever heard of someone drinking their pee to survive. Like, oh, it, like it, that okay. I can remember. Oh, okay. You know what okay. I mean? Like maybe I heard when I was younger, or whatever. But this is the first time where I was like, shit, like that dude drank his pee. You know, like that was oh, like right. blew my mind. When he pees into the bag, he notes that his pee is already orangish brown. Oop, yeah. Yeah, because he's been sweating a lot. He's really like, ex- I mean, he was expending himself hard. Right. And he, after that big stuff. gulp, he, he like stopped. Yeah. Then he drinking. stopped. Yeah. yeah. So 6.30 p.m., he actually prays. For the first time. I don't know if he's necessarily a religious person or anything like that, but he says, like, I'm going to pray. He says, God, I'm praying to you for guidance. I'm trapped here in Blue John Canyon. You probably know that. And I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Please show me a sign. And he looks up and nothing. No sign. Which leads me to believe he's not a religious person (laughs) because that's, you know, not really how it works. But (laughs) for people who are religious, typically that's not, you know. You're not usually going to get a... I mean, I've been there. I've been there in church, like make the candle move or flicker or something, you know, just make it happen, you know, but it doesn't. That's more like spirity. Testing. Yeah. That's not a church. I don't know. I'm just saying. Yeah. I do believe in ghosts. No. But anyway, so he looks up, there's there's no sign. So he says, and I'm going to try and not laugh while I talk about this. Okay, God, since you're apparently busy, devil, if you're listening, I need some help here. I'll I'll trade you my arm, my soul, whatever you want. Just get me out of here. Oh. And I'm like, that is funny shit. I mean, I know he's probably not. He's desperate. He's desperate. But the way that it reads is, it's very funny the way that he wrote it. I don't know. That he's just like bargaining. So that was day three. Uh, He makes it through the night again. He's still doing that thing where he's chipping at the rock, by the way. Oh. All this time. Like any time where he's not actively attempting to do different things, he's like chipping at this rock. He's in and out of consciousness also. Like oh my he's gosh. it's not as bad as later, but I mean he hasn't really slept mm-hmm. like any kind of like restful sleep. Day four, Tuesday, April 29th, it's 5 a.m. Um, and like I said, at this point, he's cycling in and out of consciousness. He's got a little less than three ounces of water left, and he's gonna take a drink. He puts the Nalgene on his lap and he's using because he's sitting in that thingy. Uh-huh. And he's using his left hand, his one hand, to unscrew the lid, and then he raises the bottle to his mouth. But you know about Nalgene's, and I know about Nalgene's, and a lot of people know about them they have that freaking plastic thingy yeah it's holding the the lid to the bottle on there uh-huh. it ends up snagging on his seat harness <gasps> the bottle slips and some of it pours out onto the dirt no. below making mud yeah no and he thinks water is time it's it, yeah how many hours did i just lose from that spill maybe i lost six hours maybe i lost 10 maybe half a day i don't know but i just lost time wow yeah he only has one hand he's dangling he's really tired so six forty-five a.m day four he starts to wonder are the police involved in my search and rescue yet because Everyone knows he went on a solo trip. It's 2003. Mm-hmm. I don't think he has a cell phone. It wasn't in his stuff. He already took off from work uh-huh. for this trip because he was already going to go on a trip. And they all knew he was going somewhere by himself. Uh-huh. So it's like, at what point? When are they going to start looking? Yeah. Like, oh, he should be back by now. Because we're talking about it's Tuesday. I think he's supposed to be at work on this day. All right. And then he's like, oh, maybe they're tracking credit card purchases. 
But then he remembers that all the purchases that he made from when he left Colorado to when he got to Utah were cash purchases. He bought some Gatorade along the way. I think in the movie, they show him like guzzling the Gatorade in the car. Right. And like how he like would reflect back on that. And like, oh, yeah. Gatorade. He remembers, yeah, that he bought these Gatorades, but he bought them with cash. And he's, I mean, that just makes him feel worse. Yes. Um, so he tries to shift his mind to happier memories, and he decides at this point to start videotaping himself. So he says in the first uh, videotape, it's 6.45 in the morning on Tuesday morning. Mom, Dad, I really love you guys. Thank you both for being understanding and supportive. I really have lived this last year. I wish I had learned some lessons more astutely, more rapidly than what it took to learn. I'll always be with you. Aww. He says another thing for his sister, um, but he's thinking about her. She's getting married soon. Mm-hmm. She's planning to be a volunteer teacher, and he just smiles thinking about her and kind of like going through these like happier memories. He's starting to say his goodbyes. Yeah. So at 7.58 a.m., he knows what he's going to do. Like now he's kind of resolved. He preps his tourniquet again. He unfolds the shorter, sharper blade. He holds it above a spot on the top of his forearm. And after hesitating the first time, he grips the handle and in like a really violent downward motion buries the blade into his arm. It cuts through his arm. Okay. And it's in. Okay. And he's like, all right. And he ends up, and I'm so sorry, maybe this is a trigger warning for people. Maybe I should have done a trigger warning at the very beginning. This is a really gory episode. If, if it's a trigger warning, you can skip ahead. He ends up pushing the blade in as far as he can to feel where his bones are. Uh-huh. And then he actually cuts up and out, like from the inside out, because he's realizing that the pain that he feels, any pain he feels is coming from the outer layers of his skin. It actually feels better to cut from the inside of his arm. Out. Then cutting from the outside in. Yeah. And like kind of breaking it. And the only thing I could think of when I was reading this is like when you make pudding and the top of the pudding has that skin on it. And like sometimes you pick it up and it kind of breaks from the bottom out. That's the image in my brain so that I could get through this. Gross. So if you need to think about pudding, think about pudding. Okay. It's not an arm. It's fine. It's, it's just, just pudding. pudding. He, he's actually able to open an inch wide hole in his arm and he can kind of like see what's going on. He starts tapping his bones with the knife so he knows where they are in relation to where he's cutting. And he's noticing that actually, remarkably, there's very little blood. And this reminded me of Mauro Prosperi out in the desert when he tried to commit suicide and slit his wrists. And remember, his blood, it clotted. he was so dehydrated. he was so dehydrated and he's an arid, he's in an arid area. So this is kind of a similar situation. He's actually not bleeding out. He stops, he takes a break. So he's got like kind of this like inch cut in his arm and he stops and he's like let me drink a little bit of water it ends up (laughs) he drinks he's like how can i procrastinate (laughs) yeah he ends up drinking the last of his water at this point okay um so he still has the the pee in his bag his urine Mm -hmm. and he's thinking he's already on the way to getting this like mutilation done it's time to get it over with yeah like he has like a series of thoughts kind of in that vein if you will uh-huh for the next two days aaron is in and out of consciousness he records some more he records some more messages for his friends and family two days two more days after he poked- so this day and then another day yeah oh okay so after he poked his arm he's like i think again procrastinating 
fascinating. He knows it has to happen. Or, you know, it's like one or the other. He's going to die or he's going to cut his arm off. Yeah. And it's not like he has an axe or some giant thing. It's like he has to do it little by little. Little by little. Which I can't. Megan, I can't imagine. We're going to put the links for all of of my references in Mm -hmm. here. But the article that I got most of this from was at, like I said, the Outside Online article, which again, just so good. They're so good. And he wrote it himself. He actually details way more of the next two days. It's a lot to like take in. So 9 a.m. Wednesday, he does take stock of his hours that he's been through, like his experience. He figures out and part of it is like, how do you even have the cognitive ability to be <laughs> figuring, calculating how many hours you've been out there? I would be like so zoned out. Um, mm-hmm. So he's been awake for 96 hours. So Ooh. 96 hours of sleep deprivation, 90 hours that he's been trapped, 29 hours that he's been sipping his own urine and 25 hours with no fresh water. So 2 p.m. that same day, he records a will and funeral preparations. He says he'd like his remains to be scattered at Big Sur, Havasupai Creek in Arizona, New Mexico's Sandiai Peak, and a little spot on the Rio Grande. And he says, quote, I'm holding on, but it's really slowing down. The time is going really slow. So again, love to everyone. Bring love and peace and happiness and beautiful lives into the world in my honor. It would bestow the greatest meaning for me. Thank you. I love you. Wednesday night, 11 p.m., he scratches into the wall his first name, A-R-O-N, Aaron, October 75 to April 03. Then he has kind of like this waking dream, like a real weird, almost like a hallucination kind Mm -hmm. of, a vision of a a blonde-haired three-year-old boy in a red polo shirt who's coming running across a sunlit hardwood floor. And he automatically knows this boy is his son. And he bends down and scoops him up and puts him up onto his shoulders. And they're like kind of dancing around the room and laughing. And this vision gives him the belief that he is going to live. And it changes everything from this point. He's like, I'm living. I'm going to live. That's my son. I'm going to have a kid. That just gave me goosebumps. Day six, Thursday, May 1st, 9.30 a.m. He's got five days of dirt and sand in his eyes. He says that it's an immense pain and it's very hard to see. It's like everything is like milky or we. And I'm Mm -hmm. sure that lends even more to like the mental state that he's in. Um, Drinking the urine has made his mouth raw. He's in and out of it. He describes himself as a zombie. And the extra boost that he got from seeing his future self and the vision of his future son, it's kind of, it's all but gone. He, it pumped him up enough to kind of get through that next period of time. And it's now it's not really there anymore for, for him. And he tries one at one point to smash another rock against the boulder. I think at this point, I mean, he's just like mentally not there. You yeah. know, the reverberation of the hit actually makes his left hand, his one good hand, throb so much that it hurts. And he's like, okay, I'm not going to do that again. That almost like wakes him up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Trying to clear off his right hand, clean it, because he can see there's dust and insects on it. So like he's trying to clean it. He's using the knife to do it. And he actually ends up scraping that finger and the skin flakes off. And he's oh. he kind of realizes like, I think, I think my hand is rotting. Oh, yeah. And he takes the knife and stabs it into his thumb and decomposition gases escape. (gasps) He can like hear it and then he can smell it. It smells like a rotting carcass. Oh, my God. And then he realizes that's why there's so many insects over there. I'm rotting. And he gets really angry. And he's like, you got to get rid of this this rot. You can't have this on you. Like, you have to get rid of it. It's, like, disgusting to him. Mm -hmm. And so he starts thrashing around. I think at this point, this is the animal side. 
of us. Yeah, like Just, fight or flight. Yeah. And he's fighting super hard. And in that movement, he actually feels his arm bend wrong. And he all of a sudden realizes he could forcefully break his arm if he puts enough torque behind it. This is what he writes. There's no hesitation. I barely realize what I'm about to do. I unclip from the anchor webbing, crouching until my buttocks are almost touching the stones on the canyon floor. I put my left hand under the boulder and push hard, hard, harder to put a maximum downward force on my radius bone. As I slowly bend my arm down to the left, and pow, it reverberates like a, a muted cap gun shot. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. He does the same thing to the other bone. <gasps> wow. Yeah. So they're both broken just above his wrist. Now he just cuts away at his flesh, nerves, veins, arteries. And I remember from the movie 127 Hours, uh-huh. and they use a high-pitched violin for the sound of him cutting through the nerves, like the last nerves that he had to get through. It takes him about an hour to do this. Mm-hmm. to get through everything. Um, and he gets his arm, he gets his arm free. And he crawls through the canyon, he rigs his ropes and rappels another 60 feet to the base of the cliff. And that's a technique that apparently use, needs the use of two hands. So no one knows how he did this. I think it's just pure adrenaline at this point, like pushing him wow. like he's free, you know, then he hikes about five miles. No. Yes, he's going back to his car. He's hiking five miles back to his car. He comes upon a Dutch couple and their son. Some accounts say it's two hikers. Uh-huh. Um, others say it's this Dutch couple and their son. I'm not sure what, which one is right. They give him some water. They're, of course, like, what the fuck? <laughs> They're like, dude, your hand is gone. <laughs> like, what? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, and he is bleeding a little, you know, obviously. It's like. He- and I'm just sure he looked rough. Awful. Yeah. I think it's like within a mile or a half mile of his car, uh-huh. actually. A helicopter is in the area looking for him because they had been looking for him. He walks right up to the helicopter and he's like, hello. <laughs> um, Pardon he- me, kind sir. <laughs> Are you looking for me? Might I, mean- <laughs> I have a lift to the emergency room? <laughs> if you could please. He gets on. He's fully conscious through the whole helicopter ride. They get to Allen Memorial Hospital in Moab, Utah, and he walks into the emergency room on his own, of his own fact, He's not in a stretcher or anything like that. He just walks into the emergency room. Like, it almost feels like he's hitching a ride on this helicopter. He's like, do you have a Gatorade? <laughs> Can you guys get me? Snacks? I need yeah. a Snickers. I need, I need a Cliff Bar. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah, Snickers. I'm hangry. Anyway, he is later flown to St. Mary's Hospital in Grand Junction, Colorado. And there's a park ranger. I don't know if this guy, Glenn Sherrill, is like in the helicopter with him or what's going on. But he is like, that is true grit. Oh. That guy. And we talk about For it a lot. For sure. That is grit. Yes. So rescuers actually during this time return to the canyon to try and get the amputated limb. They can't do it. They can't budge the boulder. These are rescue Was he like, it's okay, I don't need it. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But they saw it, right? Yeah, they saw it. They tried to move the boulder but couldn't. This is a quote from, I think one of the, it's either another park ranger or it's one of the rescuers, this guy Swanky. Swanky? (laughs) I think that's that's how you say it. That's so cool. Or Swank. It's one or the other. Swanky. I'm going to say Swanky because that's more fun. When Aaron hops out of the helicopter, he tells me very matter-of-factly that he has lost a lot of blood, that he is going to need assistance and that he has amputated his arm and that he has put a tourniquet on it. He's telling me everything I need to know as if he was trying to save me the trouble. Wow. That makes me a little bit teary-eyed. When he's at the hospital, he requests that his mom be notified. And this guy, oh, Swank, Swank or Swanky is search and rescue. He says, quote, I've been doing search and rescue for 23 years and I've never seen anything like this. He was just a phenomenal individual with an unbelievable will to live. And I'm like, yep. yes. Yep. 
the missing persons report was filed on the Tuesday night. You know, when he was starting to think Mm -hmm. about, are the police Mm -hmm. coming to find me or not? Because he hadn't reported to work for two days. Oh, and that just wasn't like him. That wasn't like him to not report for work. You know, in the beginning when he was like, oh, I usually leave a note for people. But his friends actually said he rarely tells us where he's going or what he's doing. So I don't know if it was like he didn't he like normally didn't tell them but they're like yeah usually he doesn't tell us so they they only started worrying when it was like day two of him not being back because they're like oh whatever he was he went someplace like a week or so later he and his mom did a press conference where mm-hmm. he kind of like tells i think a shortened version of the story people could ask questions that kind of stuff um and thanking all the search and rescue people that helped him the last little bit of the way and he says you know he's looking forward to getting back out there hiking doing all the stuff that he loves to do and then the last thing he says is i'm looking forward also to a giant margarita <laughs> good it's like yes yes, yes absolutely yes. Have a margarita. Have a lot of margaritas. Yeah. And so that's like the basic story of Aaron Ralston and his horrifying self-amputation. Survival. Survival. Yeah. In Blue John Canyon, the slot canyon. And um, he's still, you know, avid outdoors person. He did for a long time do motivational speaking Mm -hmm. about his experience. I did read one kind of not so great article about him and like a domestic violence charge that came up against a girlfriend of his. And like, I guess they both had some kind of something happened, some incident, and they both were charged, but then the charges were dropped later. So I don't really know what that was all about. I think maybe it was a little more sensationalized than than whatever it was that actually happened. Mm -hmm. Um, But he does, I believe he has two children. I was going to say, did he get that toddler? Yes. So, and I cannot remember if he has, yeah, he has two children. I think he has, I know his first child was a daughter, and I don't remember if his second child was a son. He did write a book about his experience between a rock and a hard place, which kind of makes me like laugh yeah. a little bit. 2004, he, he got that published. If you haven't, you should watch that movie, 127 Hours. He was really involved in the production of that movie. Mm-hmm. James Franco plays him in the movie. And he says that it's um, so factually accurate. It's as close to a documentary as you can get and still be a drama. Um, I think there's a part in there about these two girls that he meets and I they thought. go swimming and stuff. I don't know if that part's because like I, he was he supposed to go to a that. party, but he didn't. Yeah. And then they were looking for him or something yeah. like that. I didn't. I think I feel bad saying this, but I think I fell asleep in the movie because <laughs> that's how I roll. Yeah. Yeah. So I think my husband was watching it and I just mm-hmm. crashed out. Man, it's kind of trippy. And I can see how he was like out of it you know I think when he's talking about how it was like really accurate it's like what his brain was going through while all this was happening and then just like the resolve to like cut his own I wonder I mean I think that on the spectrum of people that would be in that situation I wonder how quickly some people may have turned to cutting off their hand maybe that was like a plan a for some people yeah but other people could have never done it and they would have just died because there's no way anybody would have found him in there that's exactly what the rescuer said they were like we would have never found him until someone else went down there yeah which who knows when that because it's like 70 feet from the surface yeah it's this like tiny slot you know you know and it makes you think quite question yourself like could i do that and at what point would I have done it? Would I have, right. would it have been the first thing I did? Like, well, fuck it. I got to cut off my hand. Like, that's your first. Who knows? Because I, I don't know enough about repelling and all that stuff to 
maybe have thought of that you could have devised a pulley or anything, but right. I just feel like if my hand was stuck, there's no way I could get it out. I feel like that would have been like my plan, plan a. a or B. Whenever I read about these situations where people get stuck in things, uh huh. I, I think I always go to cut it off. Yeah, cut it off. But, cut it off. but really mentally. Could you do it? Could you do it? Right. Because it's totally different being us here reading the story, uh-huh. evaluating. I think the part about his story that's so humanizing is that he really, especially that first part where he's like, I'm going to have to cut off my arm and he has to go through kind of the courage of doing yeah, it. Yeah, he had and to build the up. the image and how that made him ill. And yeah, he had to like... It took days for him to... Like, I couldn't believe that you said that he cut, like put the knife in his arm and then it was days later before he actually did the full cutting well broke his arm like yeah. went through the full thing so it just makes me think probably a lot of people just couldn't do it and then there's other people who would just be like freaking cut it off right you never know i guess until you're in that situation what you Man. would do I have a couple more self-amputations. Oh, my God. They're really short. Okay. Because this is like a very well-known story. And I was like, are there other people who self-amputate? And let me just say that you should not look up the phrase self-amputation online. (laughs) There's some weird shit. So it reminds me of our episode about Jan Balzerud. He was Norwegian and he was stuck waiting to try to get over to Sweden. And so he actually, his toes, he had to cut a lot of them off. Because they were so frostbitten, yes. right? And gangrene. And gangrene was mm-hmm. sitting in and he knew that he, he would definitely die if they gangrene. So we did talk about that one. So here's some more. So again, trigger warning for folks. On August 19th, 2011, 61-year-old Colorado logger named John Hutt, he was out in the remote wilderness of Western Colorado and six tons of machinery fell on off his trailer and onto his foot, pinning him instantly. He moved really quickly once he realized he was completely stuck. He didn't have a cell phone signal and he knew no one was coming out, out that way. So he dug out his pocket knife and went straight to work and amputated his own toes with his tiny pocket knife. Ugh. He was out uh, in the wilderness within a month of the incident back at it like... How many toes did he have to cut off? I think he cut off all the toes. Oh my God. Yeah. He just did it. No thought. See, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I I didn't know you were going to talk about these things. That's what I'm saying. I think there's some people that would just be like, done. Get her done. Yep. And just not even... Not even worry about it. Well, he's a lumberjack. That's... Well, there's that. Uh, In 2007, Al Hill, he's 66-year-old from Iowa Hill, California. He's in the woods cutting down trees when he becomes pinned under a fallen tree. He was there for 11 hours. He's in a remote area with no cellular service, and he used a pocket knife to sever his own leg below the knee. (gasps) Below the knee. Uh... To free himself. He got out and yelled for help, and a passing neighbor actually heard him. The neighbor trekked out to a place where he was able to call the authorities and have Al airlifted to a hospital. And he survived. These are all survivals. I wonder if they could go back and get his leg. Right? Like, if it's enough time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Doug Goodale, he's a Maine lobster fisherman. In 2002, he got his arm caught in a winch while he was out in the open water during stormy weather. He was actually thrown over the side of the ship. He was still hanging from the winch. All he could think about was his children who would be without him if he died. Like, I think he was a single parent. Something like that. Was he by himself on the ship? He was by himself. Yep. Oh, my. Um, He managed to pull himself back onto the deck of his boat. And in the process, he dislocated his shoulder and his arm is still caught in the winch and he was able to get a nearby knife and ended up sawing off his own arm at the elbow and then even while bleeding badly he guided the ship into harbor and alerted alerted the authorities they came and picked him up and he survived that's also another like just straight do it do it do it yeah gotta get home gotta get back yeah gotta he can't get to the radio he can't whatever you know 
just got to cut it off. This is September 30th, 2009 in Padang, Indonesia. Ramlin, who's age 18, was working with his friend Iman, who is 53. Uh, There was an earthquake and the concrete around them began to shake. It collapsed all around them. And the construction workers, I guess they're building maybe a building or something like Mm -hmm, that. mm -hmm. These other construction workers on Ramlin's crew were able to escape to safety, but Ramlin himself ended up getting pinned beneath a concrete girder and it entrapped his leg. So when the earthquake stopped shaking, he grabbed a nearby hoe and attempted to cut off his leg, but it was too dull. Um, He was actually able to call his friend Iman. And I don't know if this is like they came back or he called him on the phone or what, but somehow Iman came back found him there tried to get a trowel like they found a trowel like a like a small shovel you know like uh-huh. that you put, plant your plants with um but that didn't work either eventually Iman located a hacksaw Ramlin tried to saw his leg off he was too weak to do it like to free himself and so could you do this Jen Iman took the saw and sawed the rest of his friend's leg off wrapped the wound and took Ramlin to a nearby hospital. That story creeps me out a little bit more. I mean, oh, right? Like, oh. they couldn't wait for anybody to come. It was like maybe too dangerous or something. I, I guess, yeah. Or that's too remote. Maybe, or... maybe that's the... I don't know why they didn't want to wait or if it was like the earthquake affected so many other people that it was like he had to get out now. There right. weren't access to emergency crews. I'm not sure exactly. But Ramlin, when he got to the hospital, they did have to do an additional amputation because uh, they needed to clean the wound and then... Because they used like a hacksaw, so it wasn't... It was bad news. Uh, And then to, I guess, do a a cleaner break of the bone. Look, if, I mean, (laughs) if you were stuck somewhere, yeah, I'd do it. Yeah. But I feel like we would change our relationship a little bit. (laughs) Just a little bit. Uh, be harder to laugh at things it would be it It'd would be like be. remember that time i oh, <laughs> oh god <laughs> like, <laughs> the podcast would take a real dark turn <laughs> <You're> like <laughs> megan i'm so sorry <laughs> um i don't think i mentioned it but aaron did go back uh they were able to get his arm somehow i don't know i don't think they moved the boulder but somehow he was able to get pieces of whatever was left or or maybe what they caught i'm not sure exactly and he did get it cremated and then he scattered uh the ashes i think at the, he went back and visited the boulder oh essentially weird. yeah you can go and see it that's People, very evil dead yeah <laughs> <laughs> What if he got a chainsaw? Oh, God. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right. Jokes. Wow. Jokes, jokes, jokes. Yeah. We're All just right. making light because it's really frightening. It's horrific. Yeah. If you stop, I mean, while I was reading about this, you know, like sometimes when we do these researchy things, you're like reading about it and you're all by yourself and you're reading about it and you're just like, whoa, the mm-hmm. emotions this person went through and like torment, I mean, mental torment and PTSD and trauma and all of this. Mm-hmm. And he came out and did public speaking about it. You know, it like blows my mind. Right. I would be under the covers in my bed for the rest of my life that's just like claire she wrote a book yeah i mean it changed our life it is the grit it's the grit yeah people with grit and it's like you hope that you have it like maybe i would have it i don't know you would i would hope so i mean i think about that raft that time under the raft and just being like super cool with it (laughs) (laughs) until later and then i was like yeah 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 but i mean i still go on you know still go out in the water it's still like just probably i wouldn't do rapids yeah you never know you never know (laughs) But yeah, yeah, I don't know. know. That was a great story. I had a friend. She had a phobia. There's a phobia about that 
like losing a limb. Okay, so there's one called body integrity dys- dysphoria, but that seems like it's body identity disorder mm-hmm. where you have a desire to be disabled or have discomfort. Nope. Yeah, but nope, being able bodied. Not that one. Apotemnophobia is a severe fear of becoming an amputee. Yeah. And intense discomfort or being around people who have body parts yes. amputated. Yes. Yeah. She had that. Well, that is a really good story. I know we have had a lot of requests for that one, so thank you for telling it. Yeah. Organization to support? Yes. National Park Foundation, Canyonlands National Park Foundation. So the National Park Foundation is like a big organization, but you can donate directly to Canyonlands National Park Foundation. And I know that it's not technically where the Blue John Canyon is, because that's on Bureau of Land Management, but it's next door. Same, same. Why not? Same, same. same. Close enough. Yeah. And the National Park Foundation is the official nonprofit partner of the National Park Service, and they generate private support and build strategic partnerships to protect and enhance America's national parks for present and future generations. I love national parks so much. They're super cool. Yeah, they're really cool. And we're going to start doing some... I have some stories. Oh. The National Park Foundation was chartered by Congress in 1967. It is rooted in a legacy that began more than a century ago where private citizens from all walks of life took action to establish and protect our national parks. Today, the National Park Foundation carries on that tradition as the only national charitable nonprofit whose mission is to directly support the National Park Service. Pretty cool. And actually, Canyonlands National Park Foundation, uh, you can become a junior park ranger online. And I was like, that's super freaking cool. That's really cool. That's fun for COVID times. Let's do it. National Park Foundation also supports a public humanities fellowship program for postdocs, thanks to the generous funding of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. So you can become a fellow. Wow. uh, Yeah, and do these different, they do all sorts of people do like social science, they do, you know, ecology, biology, whatever, all sorts of stuff uh, within the national park system. So pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, my organization. So, Jen, here we are. At the end of the episode, I'm going to ask you, what would you put in your emergency preparedness kit? Definitely. We're having some sort of better knife situation. Guaranteed. But I feel like we'd already have that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, you already packed your Swiss Army or your... Bowie knife. Your Rambo knife. Yeah. You've packed something really good mm-hmm. because now you know you may have to amputate a limb. Right. You never know. You left a good note at home letting everyone know where you were going. Everyone knows where you're going. With a lot of details. Exactly. We know that's already in the emergency preparedness kit. Did you pack some flares? Because if you didn't, pack your flares. Right. Just do all the things. All the things. We know about those. Yep. But I think one thing from he might be missing that I'm pretty sure I used one of these when um, through my work Mm -hmm. in 2003 was do you remember those um, those cell phones? It was like it was like in the day where everybody had a beeper, but they were transferring to cell phones. Uh-huh. And there was that weird in between that was like a phone, and but it was also like a radio. Like and so everybody had one and you could beep each other. And you could be like, Brrr. yes, Jen, like, copy over. Brrr. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I'm in the canyon. Like a, like a Nextel Motorola phone. Yes. A Nextel <laughs> Motorola phone. She looked it up. I did look it up. So yeah. Uh, a Nextel Motorola phone. 
I had one. I remember when cell phones first came out, I was like, this is so stupid. I don't want to carry this thing around. Mm -hmm. You know, it was kind of like, it was just cumbersome. It was cumbersome. It's like one more thing to remember. I don't want somebody to reach me that easily. That was the number one reason. You want to reach me? Leave a message on my voicemail at home. That's right. My machine. My machine at the house. I think by that time I might have had through the phone company like an electric voicemail that you could Mm -hmm. call in at that point. I was was too poor for that. Well... (laughs) Well, that's when we also had like the, remember, you had to have the antenna. Oh, yeah. You always use the antenna. You had to put the antenna up. Every time. You couldn't leave it down. And when it went to flip phones. Oh, God. You flip and you antenna. <laughs> All the things. I loved oh, flip phones. I think they're still, I think they're coming back. I think so, Along too. with like mom jeans that are whitewashed. Mm, yeah, let's that's not. That's a bad let's choice. Let's not do that. Well, anyway, so I if think if he had one of those, mm-hmm. I don't know. He could have called the ranger station. He could have called the ranger. He's like, Burr. <laughs> and they're like ranger station and he's like uh, i'm trapped in a crevasse <laughs> they're like all right we'll be right there copy over i'm a few hours from amputating my arm you I could mean, please get here chances quickly. are he didn't have a signal but i'm just saying yeah 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 it'd have been cool to have one for sure i mean he had all the other like early gadgets. 2000s he gadgets had a lot of, he had a lot he of had the cd player he had the camcorder yeah he had a camcorder. camcorder and that i remember also with my job we had digital cameras yeah but you had to put a Freaking floppy disk in it. Not a floppy, but the hard one, you know? Yeah, yeah. You put a... F- so a step down from like a... Yeah, just like a regular disk. A regular like, disk. Yeah. You put a disk in it and you could only take like six pictures and it would fill up the disk. So you'd have oh, to have all these disks labeled. That's amazing. Those were the days. When I went to Peace Corps, I still had film camera. I had a film camera. Oh, yeah. I went home for Christmas and I got two things for Christmas. An iPod. It was a brick. And I was like overjoyed. It was like $1,000. And I I spent, I mean, days putting all of my (laughs) CDs on it. Like days. Megan, I still have all my CDs. I still have all my CDs. I don't know what to do with them. They're right here in this table. What do you do with them? I can't get rid of them. Yeah, we can't just throw them away. You can't. That's waste. They might be worth something someday. No, they won't. (sighs) Anyway, and then the other thing I got for Christmas that year, digital camera. Yeah. I got a Canon. It was like small, but it had it had like a tiny. Got stolen out of your bag. I we came back. We went to Palau. You went for something else. I went for to look at their spay and neuter clinic. Yeah. Because I was going to run one in in where we were, and Uh like, and I put it in my checked luggage and i remember you saying like you're a dumbass like why did you do that and i was like it's fine and we got back and it was gone and i was like mother so someone yeah someone someone is looking at pictures of just like dog dog clinics (laughs) it's all i took pictures of so i don't know anyway but yeah it had a tiny screen yeah even the back screen wasn't very big you know yeah I remember. It doesn't oh, seem that long ago, but... It had like a weird battery. The way you had to charge the battery was weird. It was all weird. It was a lot of stuff. It's a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, thank God we don't That's have those nice. stupid Nel- uh, Nextel phones anymore. <laughs> yeah. Those are fun. I mean, I guess. Mm. I never had a pager. I always wanted a pager. And I felt I like didn't. I needed to be somebody more important to have a pager. Right. Like a doctor. My boyfriend, one of my boyfriends in high school. One of my boyfriends <laughs> in high <laughs> one school. Of my many boyfriends. So many. He had a pager. And I remember thinking it was the weirdest thing that he it's had a pager. It's either like either you sold drugs. Right. Yeah. Or Which you he, were a doctor. He absolutely did not sell or drugs. Or you were on call for something. His mom was a nurse oh. at the time. And I think she was like, and he was, she was a single mom. Okay. And so it was, yeah, I think that's why. These she are my OR paper. scrubs. Oh, are they? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> That's an early 2000s reference. That's right pretty there. good. Yeah. Thank you. Um, anyway, thanks, Megan. That was an amazing story. And we have one patron to shout out. We do. 
Yeah. So Angelina, thank you so much for joining our Nature Yay! Nerd Patreon family. Thank welcome. You. And she's welcome. the one that shares a lot of fun information with us. She was yeah. the one that talked to me uh, or sent the information about the calicos. calicos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. she has lots of cool stuff. So yeah. Anyway, thank you so much for the support. Thank Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks for anybody who has... Uh, rated and reviewed us on the Apple. Send uh, your mailing address to us. And actually, I added on our contact page a form that if you want to contact us on the website, you can just fill it out. And it's so funny, I didn't tell anyone about it and someone used it. Yeah, that was And cool. I was like, whoa, that's crazy. Someone used it. Yeah. And it wasn't me. I wasn't testing it out. It was like actually a different person. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, hey, Megan, <laughs> this is Megan. <laughs> yeah. Um, very cool. But yeah, we uh, love to get lots of stuff from you guys. We like to get feedback and stories and ideas, and we appreciate it when you subscribe, rate, and review. Send me your address or a mailing address that I can mail you a sticker. Yeah. I'll do it. Jen's working up the next batch. That's right. I'm putting together. I got my list. It's going out this week. Sweet. It's happening. And until next time, don't die out there. Bye. Bye. Did I scare you? <laughs> Sorry. That like legitimately scared me. <laughs> did you like get a little did it like get a little a little butt clinch on that one? <laughs> uh, sorry. Oh, but it's true. Yeah. They do that. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Perfect. So but anyway. Yeah, keep cinnamon in. Cinnamon in? Keep all cinnamon. Cinnamon in. (laughs) We haven't even started yet. It's going to be fine. This is going to be a real good episode. It's like nighttime. That's why. Yeah. Nighttime episodes are always the best. Yeah. Um, That's when I fail to speak properly. Like, this is so dumb, but I'm just going to tell you that in my workout class, yeah. we do box jumps. Oh. And-, and I would do them like, I'm a box and jump on the box, <laughs> like all for years. Yeah. And then one day, one morning, I jumped and I slipped and I just just tore my shin open and it was just blood was pouring and I kept working. I was like, it's fine. It's fine. It's totally fine. It was blood everywhere. <laughs> I was like, it's totally cool. And it hurt really bad, but I just pretended like it was fine. Yeah. And to this day, and that was like two years ago, I still cannot jump on a freaking box box jump yeah i can't do it yeah there are certain things that you just it's like a mental block like yes. I, i'm like i know i need to do like baby steps up to get back to it but i'm like never mind yeah i'm good